left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. Left Field Investors is opening the BEC with Passive Investing Mastery, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate LP investors. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in left field this year, imagine them both back to back. The best ever conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing mastery includes admission to the entire best ever conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th, where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then immerse yourself in the full best ever conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing Mastery presented by Left Field Investors at the BEC. Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pull your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to TribeBest.com to get started today. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. The value of the property is based on the income that it produces. So your income minus operating expenses equals your net operating income. The value of the property is a factor of that net operating income. And so our job is to increase that net operating income and that a good operator that comes in every single line item on the accounting sheet, right? It's not uh, the days of buy the apartment that have $1,000 rents and turn them into 1,200 and, and your business model is done. That's, that has never existed for us, but that doesn't exist anywhere anymore. So what we're good at is reading each line item and then a lot of times finding those opportunities in between the line items. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hi, this is Scott Royal Smith from Royal Legal Solutions, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
I'm excited today to have Jared Sturm with us. He is the CEO and co-founder of SNS Capital Group, a multifamily owner, operator, and syndicator focused on the Cincinnati, Ohio market. Jared, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Yeah, Jim, thank you so much for having me. And you know, thanks to everyone at Left Field that makes this podcast possible. And then certainly thank you to the, the listeners who are taking some time to uh, hear, hear my story and, and hopefully take away a few nuggets. Yeah, that, that's awesome. That's what we're looking for. So the first question, you kind of nailed it there. Um, your journey, your story, how did you get into real estate? How did you become an operator and, and why Cincinnati? I guess we'll talk about why Cincinnati, but maybe just kind of talk about your journey first. Yeah. And, you know, as of today, I am a real estate syndicator that focuses on multifamily in Cincinnati. But I think my, my roots or my beginning has a, a unique component to it. So I actually started in the industry as a, a maintenance tech myself. So I was the guy changing toilets and hanging blinds and painting apartments for another local landlord here in the Cincinnati, Ohio market where I was born and raised. Um, so that was around high school time. And, you know, I've been buying real estate for almost 16 years since then. But the evolution kind of looked like we went from, um, you know, being maintenance techs. And when I say we, it'd be me and my brother who are still business partners today, being maintenance techs to starting our own construction company where we were doing kitchens and bathrooms and additions and things like that. Um, and then in 2008, we looked around and we said, hey, why are we working on other people's houses? Let's buy some of these foreclosures. And so we started buying, you know, single family houses one at a time, fixing them up at the time, substituting our lack of capital for sweat equity. And then um, that grew from single families to duplexes to quads. And uh, now we're sitting at about 1,300 units here in Cincinnati, Ohio, over a 16-year time frame. But the whole time we have been focused on building up our own company underneath us to support the operations of those assets. Excellent. So you started kind of, it seems like a typical path, right? You start with some single family duplex and grow. So where are you now? Um, I assume you're doing larger than just four, you know, quads and things like that, um, apartments. So can you talk a little bit about how you transitioned from just doing smaller units or smaller uh, properties on your own account to doing larger ones and having investors come alongside you? Yeah, well, the first eight years was with our, our own capital. So we didn't raise money for the first eight years. It was uh, buy something that has distress, force appreciation into it, strip that equity and roll it into the next one. Right. The business model is the same now as it was then. We do slightly larger deals, but the transition from, say, small assets to larger ones happened before we were raising capital. Um, but at the end of the day, large, you know, 100 plus unit apartment communities do cost a lot of money. And so we were only able to do, you know, one of those and and then we needed to uh, continue to fund that. And we did that through real estate syndication. Um but now today, you know, we're at 1300 units. We're typically buying, uh, for us, we've settled into a really nice niche of like 70 to 180 unit apartment communities, um, and doing between three to four deals a year. Okay. And so when you, when you started bringing on investors, how did mm -hmm. that change or did it change your operations or the way the business works? Because now you have you know, other people to answer to and, and, you know, all the documents and stuff, but how did it, did it change anything in the operational aspect of the business? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a whole nother business, right? So it's a whole nother business to be bolted on to our already real estate investment firm. 
Um, just prior to making the decision to go into real estate syndication, we actually uh, did welcome in a third partner who is, you know, still my one third partner today, but his name is Coleman. Coleman has his master's degree in accounting. Um, he's a CPA himself, and he spent several years at a you know, multi-billion dollar real estate firm where in that firm, he did investor reporting to the investors as well as the SEC. And so um, he brought that institutional grade background in investor reporting to our smaller kind of boots on the ground operational component that was already in place. Okay. And then talking about the operations, you know, wh- why is it so important to be and this to be effective at operating the apartments. Obviously, you want to be, but there, you know, as a syndicator, you're worried about your clients who might be the investors, but they could also be the people that live in the apartment or the property management company. How can you um, can you talk just a little bit about the operations of the apartment? And maybe what sets you apart from other operators that you see? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a distinction that a lot of passive investors should look for. But it, you, the distinction is subtle and you should say, what is the core competency of this syndication sponsor? And the way I would describe ourselves is, first and foremost, we are owner operators of multifamily assets. We just happen to use syndication to further that core competency. And again, there's no right or wrong here, but it, there is a distinction that if, if another firm's core competency is sales, marketing, and raising capital, and they just happen to use real estate or specifically multifamily real estate to further that core competency. But at the end of the day, they could have raised money for tech or, you know, whatever venture it is. And so I think as a, as a passive investor, um, looking at the core competency, what this sponsor is really good at. And for us, it's operations. I find it the most important part, but going back in our story, you know, we were scaling up buying these smaller properties and we actually hit a tipping point where we were making the decision, do we go to third party management or do we b- build a true management company up underneath us to support the operations of our asset? Um, at that time, which this was 12, 13 years ago, we decided we were going to hire a third party management company. But to do that, we actually took it from the perspective of the customer, which would be the tenant or the resident. And we started calling similar community or similar properties to ours as if we were tenants looking for properties to see first we wanted to see it from the sales side and the customer service side where they handling prospects the way we would want our properties to be handled the results were so poor that we never even made it to the corporate office or the sales office we just ultimately decided no we're going to keep this all in house and build up our own property management company you know and, and we never looked back so last 13 years has been about hiring the right people, building the systems and processes to put it in place. But, you know, it all comes from the the background that myself and my brother have in construction and then the uh, school of hard knocks and property management of just learning what works, subtly improving and continuously making those processes better. But for me, um, you know, property management is the most important component, or I should say the operations is the most important component to producing the returns that we're looking for. Um, And then a a distinction I like to make when emphasizing operations that I think a lot of investors miss is um, operations support the returns, but the operations are supported by the people that are on site. And so when, when you're 
uh, when passive investors are looking at sponsors, it's important to look at what is their core competency, but then also dig into like who is behind those operations, right? So like, you know, me, I'm not on site as much as I used to be, but have I produced the right culture and organization to attract the talent and the people who will have the right values to lead those operations to produce the results that we're looking for? And a, and a subtle tip or a tip I'll give there is like, you can always look at your job listings for the sponsor that you're considering investing with, right? If they, if we have 1300 units and we have 10 maintenance tech positions of open on Indeed, that would be a major red flag. Um, and so thinking about employee retention, how we operate, all of those things would be good tips for, you know, passive investors to look into. That's really interesting. I've never heard that one before to look at the job listings, um, but that could certainly tell you something. But I do want to step back. You mentioned core competencies several times. So as a passive investor, well, first, you said yours is operations and, and maybe others could be sales or marketing. And I, and I completely agree with that. I can see that. Um, but when I'm talking to, as an LP, I'm talking to a new operator, a new sponsor. How do I tell what their core competency is? Because if I ask them, Right. And they're honest. They say, Oh, it's sales. Well, okay. That's easy. I'm, I'm not interested in investing with you if your core competency is sales. I imagine most of them would say, Oh, we're a great operator. So how as a LP do I figure out? Yeah. This is actually their core competency. This is what they're best at. Yeah. I would, I think it's probably two parts, right? First, you got to read the tea leaves in the conversation. A lot of times core competencies stem from the story or the beginning. Right. So for me, you know, being a maintenance tech and uh, being in the construction industry might be different than if someone worked at a large firm. Um, and so I think looking backwards in time and putting the pieces together of like, where would this core competency have come from? Right. If I if I say I worked at Marcus and Millichap for 10 years and then I tell you my core competency is operations, you might say, like, well, explain that to me. Right. Like how how does operations come from? working at Marcus and Millichap. Um, and so I, I think that doing that, but then the more important part would be verifying it. And the most, the easiest way to do that is go to other investors, right? So groups like your guys is, is, is a, a tremendous platform to then verify that, right? So you have a community where you can say, Jared and SNS Capital Group is saying they're good at operations. Has anyone seen them perform and how do they do at operations? You know, when, when the business plan doesn't go well, how do they adjust? Right. Um, so track record matters, but, um, it's two parts. You can ask the questions of the sponsor or the sales representative that's selling you on the, you know, syndication. And then it's verifying those, that information as well. And this this is kind of a maybe a little bit in the weeds, but what what does it mean to be a good operator? I mean, you mentioned property management, so we can talk about that kind of as a separate question. But what what does a good operator do that mm -hmm. maybe a, a a less good operator mm -hmm. doesn't do, or someone who is so focused on raising capital might miss out on? What what are some of those strengths that that come with a good operator? Yeah. I mean, I think you said one of the words that pops into my head, which is focus, right? So like one of the reasons I think we're a good operator is because we only focus on one market, right? We have 1300 units within probably a 10 mile radius of each other. And so it allows us to focus. It allows us to uh, build a team that can assist each other and benefit from economies of scale, which just 
you know, compounds operational efficiency. Um, I think, I think though that another, another answer to that would be being good at operations means you're good at rolling with the punches. And because any sponsor can put together a business plan, whether it's, you know, five years or seven years or 10 years or whatever that is, they will never go to plan perfectly. And so how, when you're a good operator, how do you react to those things to get the project back on track? That that's important, but I think the best operators and something that we do is we don't lose that same, we don't lose that mentality of continuously improving on things, even if we are hitting projections. So the best operators are constantly turning stones, looking for another way to maximize income, looking for the next way to, to shave a little bit off expenses. And they do all of that, even if they're exceeding their projected returns. And so, um, you know, that's something that one of our core values, you'll see it plastered all over our corporate office or our website. And one of the six is continuously improving. And so there's, there's been, you know, for 15 years, we've had the wind at our back in real estate. We've been able to meet or exceed our projections on every deal, but it doesn't change how we approach it because one day, if not already, things are starting to get harder. And the, those core values and that philosophy will begin to really show. And I think that time is, you know, now. So I'm looking forward to some challenging recessionary times where I can show off what we've spent, you know, 15 years building. Yeah, and I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But you you brought up the fact that you're only in one market. And, and I kind of see, like, I love that from the perspective of you're really going to be dialed in. You're going to know that market and you're going to understand that market. You're in one asset class. So that that gives a, an investor some confidence. But mm-hmm. on the same side, like we always think about diversify by asset class, market, and operator. And, and so that's easy to do for, for an investor. But should an investor be concerned at all about you being in one market? Like let's say something happens in the Cincinnati market that negatively affects apartments there, right? Then now all of a sudden you have everything there and perhaps your business is in trouble. And I'm not saying you would do this, but maybe maybe the operator just walks away and says, you know, I, I'm out. So can you talk a little bit about the pluses and any minuses you see to someone being all in on one market and one a- asset class? And you touched on a couple, but can you dig a little bit deeper into that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And as a passive investor, I think diversification is extremely important um, and should be used. Uh as an active operator, I believe the the positives that I've already mentioned more than offset the lack of diversification. So it's just a, a net calculation, right? And so um, there's risk, and you're absolutely right. You know, macroeconomic event for the Cincinnati market, something happens, could negatively impact me. I believe we're far more offset by our control. So like our control of, of how we can enforce appreciation, how we can operate for that consistent, predictable cash flow. Um, so it's, it's not to say that that doesn't exist, that the risks don't exist. They absolutely do. I just believe we offset it through the positives. Okay. And then we also talked a little bit about property management, how you, you, you tried to find a property manager. You couldn't find one that you liked. So you just did it yourself. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the importance of effective quality property management? And you've already kind of answered why you do it yourself than rather than hire out. But um, are there any incentives or are there any negatives for you doing your own property management? And then also, again, talk about the importance of the actual property management part of it. 
Um, so, so, so yeah, there's tons of negatives. It's lots of work, right? Like I, I label it as like the, the hardest, most important, least profitable component of our business. But the profits we receive are on how we can control the valuation and cash flow of the assets, right? So I didn't start a property management company for the 3% fee. I started it because I'm buying distressed assets that we're trying to double in value at times, right? And um, that forced appreciation takes a ton of effort. No one cares like an owner. And so we wanted that component, that control component to be overseen by ownership, which is, you know, us. So the three partners of SNS Capital Group, which is our, you know, capital raising arm of our business, are also the three same equal partners of SNS Management, which is our management arm. Um, and so I, I believe I've answered your question, but yeah, it's all about control and changing the income or expenses in a favorable direction to then force value. And you you mentioned forced appreciation, forced value. Yeah. Can you talk about what that means? How do you do it? Mm-hmm. And and just the, the concept in general. Yeah. Um so most most of the listeners will probably realize that the value of the property is based on the income that it produces. So your total income minus your total expenses, or I should say income minus operating expenses equals your net operating income, the value of the property is a factor of that net operating income. And so our job is to increase that net operating income and that a good operator that comes in every single line item on the accounting sheet, right? It's not uh, the days of buy the apartment that have uh, $1,000 rents and turn them into $1,200 and and your business model is done. That has never existed for us, but um, that doesn't exist anywhere anymore. So um, what what we're good at is reading each line item and then a lot of times finding those opportunities in between the line items, you know, things that we wouldn't have even caught in the, and I actually mentioned this earlier, being like relentless about the pursuit of driving that NOI. Um, and so, you know, it might be two years into the ownership and all of a sudden we realize here's a way that we can cut utility expenses or there's a demand for this paid parking in this specific area or we can as minor as like one of these dumpsters never fills up. Let's remove it. Right. So like they're, they're usually not profound impacts, but it's the combination of all of them that have a, a quite profound. I mean, for us, the biggest one would be renovations. We're good at construction. Not only is our property management in-house, our construction is as well. So, you know, we have a team of people that are renovating our apartments. They're W2 employees for S&S. We have full-time cleaners that handle our cleaning process. Um, and so, that's the biggest component is can you make a more desirable asset, raise the rents, but then it's all the other things of like, how do you decrease expenses? We're in the process of buying uh, one apartment community in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, I sent a text message to the owner just to verify that they had turned the boiler heat on in this one specific building that had boilers. And they, the, the response was, we have never turned them off in our whole time of owning them. So there's like small things where it's like utility expense, right? The gas bill for that is not accurately reflecting how we're going to run it because in the spring we will turn that boiler off and not uh, combat it with air conditioner. And so um, lots and lots of ways, you know, we're, we're good at sub metering utilities in the construction component of our renovations. 
but there's a lot of inefficiencies in real estate and we're pretty good at finding them. This is Zach Hapsensall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full-cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E-4-8equity.com backslash invest. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents, and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. And how do you go about finding them? Do you, do you do that before you close on the property? Or do you find some before, some after? Like, What's the process? Because you know, as you're trying to figure out if the pro forma makes sense and if you're going to make, you have to do that all beforehand. But yeah. I imagine some of that stuff you find out about afterwards. So how much of it do you need up front to be able to decide to, to purchase a property? Yeah, as, as much as possible. At the end of the day, underwriting is a guess, um, but it needs to be as accurate as possible to then make projected returns, right? So how much can you cut expenses? How much can you drive income? Most of that needs to be hashed out at the beginning. And I think the way most syndication sponsors should underwrite it are here are the here are the obvious ways that we can do this. These have a high degree of probability that we can capture that. Call it conservative underwriting or whatever you'd like. But there are certainly components that you just you don't see during due diligence or acquisition process that uncover themselves as you establish yourself as a very diligent um, focused property management company, right? You, you send out surveys to the residents, you start to hear their feedback, you start to compile it and say, here's how we can make these adjustments to improve. Um, I mean, even, even just, um, sub metering, we do a lot of sub metering of water and we'll see that the total consumption goes down by about 30% when you sub meter the water. It's just a reaction to people being responsible for what their individual usage is. And so, um, those are the type like, you know, submeter and water, raising of rents. Those are the large ticket items that would all be projected out up front. And I've heard you talk about, and you mentioned it here a few times, distressed properties. And what I've heard it, you've said it, you've said a couple of things. One is, you know, a distressed property that has some renovation issues or, or things like that, or poor management issues, that those are two types of distressed properties. Can you explain what what that means when you're talking about a distressed property, how you find them and and what the difference between maybe a renovation issue is and maybe a, a poor management issue. Um, I mean, most of the properties we buy have a combination of, of both components, right? So um, but how we how we source them is primarily through relationships. And so another advantage to having a syndication sponsor who's very geographically focused is we have very strong relationships in one market, right? And so those relationships come direct to owners. They come uh, to real estate brokers who specialize in our specific niche and, and um, 
asset class and market. So that's, uh, I would say deal sourcing all comes through relationships. Identifying the stress comes through years of wisdom and know-how and operations of being able to say, I know I can do that better, right? I can, I know I can do that better because I own 1300 units that are very similar to that. And I can run the financial report and say, you know, our repairs and maintenance should be X percent of effective gross income, but this owner is running it at, you know, X plus whatever. Um, and so it's years of figuring that out, knowing what we can run it at. And we stay very consistent in our acquisition. So we're kind of C to B class multifamily in the Cincinnati, Ohio market. So a lot of our experience then translates onto the due diligence and underwriting in the next asset to know what we can drive that down to. Right. So when I know garden style, Cincinnati, Ohio, C to B class multifamily, we should be sitting at an expense ratio between like 42 and 45. Right. So like if I'm, if I'm underwriting a deal and I, and the current ownership is operating it at 55 or 65, I'll say, where is this wrong? You know, where is this going wrong? Is this something we could improve or is this something that's built into the property that I can't get rid of? Um, and that is how you would identify that upside. And you mentioned that you're kind of looking forward to proving, you know, wind at your back for 15 years, you're looking forward to proving you know, that you, you know, operations in, in the coming years. And, and I get that because, you know, I own some multifamily properties that I managed myself and we made a bunch of money, not because I was good at it. It was in, in spite of me being bad at it, right? Because everything was going up. Mm -hmm. So now that, you know, interest rates are an issue, insurance costs are an issue, and, and there's just a lot of things happening, a lot of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. What are you doing or what do you think your, your strengths are that are going to make make this be a good time for you? And then kind of a side question or how, how do LPs determine that in an operator so that they know that, you know, you, you're the one that they want to hitch their wagon to? Um, well, I think leaning on our core competency of operations only works if we have the right debt in place. So you, you, you mentioned, you know, interest rate climate. I'm very fortunate that over the 16 years, all of, you know, over the maybe 10 years of syndications we've done, We've only ever used long-term fixed rate debt, which then allows us to actually focus on the operations and not be worried about the, the the change in the interest rate climate. You know, like I think on average, our next over our whole portfolio, the average maturity is about seven years out for us. Um, and so how does an LP uh, make sure they're hitching their wagon to someone who can weather the storms of the recession? I would say first pay attention to their debt because even the best operator can get wiped out if they have the wrong debt structure. Um, but then I said it earlier of operations are supported by the people, right? And so getting a feel for how are these people, are they happy at the organization they're in? Are they doing a good job? It's as simple as Google reviews, right? Like look at, read, look up the property, read the Google reviews, or is it positive? Is it negative? Obviously you'll have both of some, both positive and negative, but what is the general feel of how, this um, company is performing because at the end of the day, it's a customer service business when you say operations. And so positive Google reviews, how it actually translates to returns and what LPs are probably most concerned about is a KPI we track in our organization is length of resident stay, right? Resident retention. So for C2B class multifamily in Cincinnati, Ohio, the, the norm over the market is about little over two years, 
that's the average length. Ours is 49 months. So like the customer service standpoint, if you look at Google, you maybe you won't be able to know that by just Googling SNS, but if you Google our properties, you'll see that the residents are happy. Happy residents don't move as much. Not moving as much drives down vacancy costs, drives down turnover costs, drives, uh, drives up employee retention. And all of these things then trickle down to NOI, which trickle down to returns. And so at the end of the day, how does an LP source a good operator? It's like, are these operators taking care of the customer? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are paying the returns of the investor. So, so I want to go back to the to the debt question because, you know, I don't know, a lot, most, many, whatever you want to say, operators were using adjustable rate debt Mm-hmm. as a tool, right? It enhanced their returns. And for eight, 10 years, that was a great way to give LPs great returns, right? And you were doing fixed debt. So you might have had, I don't know, but probably you you might have had um, lower returns than others that were doing the adjustable rate. Now, the fixed rate in retrospect looks brilliant over the last couple of years because there's a lot of people that are in trouble that have adjustable rate debt. So mm-hmm. I guess my question is, how do you balance that as, a, as an LP looking at it? Like, yes, you're, you're just doing fixed rate all the time. And now that's great. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, you know, the results might not have been as good. So how do how should LPs be looking at that? Should we be looking at it like, oh, wow, you knew something was coming and, and you really did the right thing? Or should we look at it as you were willing to maybe take a little bit lower return to be a little bit more conservative and maybe we like that? So again, I'm not trying to be critical of either way, yeah. um, but kind of how, how do you look at that and, and how did you look at that when you first started and said, no, we're just going to go uh, fixed debt? Uh, I, I think it's just, a, again, there's no right or wrong, right? But it's just my own investment philosophy. In the first eight years, we learned how to underwrite and structure our deals without raising money from investors. So it was all 100% our own capital. And we just, I think in the Midwest here in Cincinnati, Ohio, we have the cash flow to support uh, more conservative debt. And so that's the way we've always leaned. And, 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 and you know, over those years where floating rate debt was more favorable, you might have had 100 basis points le- less on the, the interest rate. I did get those questions from investors. And my answer was, my investment philosophy is consistent, predictable cash flow. And I can't have predictability if I have a floating rate loan. And so there were times where the returns as presented were maybe less than others as presented. But the the favorable thing is we also are just very good at operating. So a lot of times any of the negative impact to returns that we saw from having a slightly higher interest rate, <clears throat> we were able to offset by our efficiencies within operations. And so, you know, um, yeah, we sent some extra money to the bank for many years, but now where we're sitting, we're very happy with it. And actually from 2021 to 2023, we used all swap loans. Um, So I don't know if you're familiar with swaps, but they actually become a huge asset as interest rates go up. And so, you know, instead of a prepayment penalty from us to the bank, uh, we get the prepayment penalty from the bank to us. And so we have, you know, even this year recently, back in August, we had a very, very successful cash out refinance um, because we had swap loans. So basically what's happening is the, the I'll, I'll try to do a quick summary here for investors who are interested in this, because if, if you 
have a sponsor who is using this, they're sitting on major assets. So um, uh, a bank will say, you know, SNS will lend you uh, X million dollars at three and a half percent interest, but it's floating. And the alternative or what happens then is I say, no, I'm not interested in a flowing rate loan, but they can take it out to the derivatives market where a Wells Fargo or a Merrill Lynch or some major organization says, I'll pay that three and a half percent floating if you agree to pay me four and a half percent fixed for 10 years. And I'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and so there, you know, Wells Fargo is happy to make their hundred basis point spread but they have to continue to pay that floating rate loan wherever it goes. Well, now it's at nine or whatever, and we're still paying them four and a half. And it's just a mathematical calculation where they say, we want out of this because we're bleeding money. We'll pay you X dollars to get out of this. And, you know, for specific numbers, you know, the, the refinance we just did on a property, we had about $10 million in debt. The breakage that they had to pay us when we refinanced out uh, was close to a million dollars. So, you know, the, the prepayment penalty is a lot. Uh, is very favorable, yeah. which that's cash to us. Um, and then we did, we went from like having a 4.9% uh, to a 5.5 because we went from, uh, so we did see a slight increase in interest rate, but we also reset the interest only clock. We The property was now stabilized, qualified for agency debt. And so it made a lot of sense financially. And net result was investors received a 210% of their initial contribution through loan proceeds. So my, like my point being is we made a lot of decisions that at the time seemed highly conservative. And I think we'll continue to make those same type of decisions because it just aligns with our investment philosophy. So the question is yeah. like, can you find as an LP, can you find a investment, a, a sponsor that aligns with your philosophy? Cause it's not to say mine is right. And another one is wrong. Yeah. That, that's, I think that the last thing you said is, is great. You know, you, you want to find, uh, an operator that that aligns with your philosophy as an investor. Mm -hmm. And that's super important because if you don't align, then someone's going to be frustrated. And guess what? It's going to be mostly the LP because the LP mm -hmm. is in the position where they don't have a whole lot of choices once they send that wire, right? So I think that that's great. That's really good stuff that the you have to find an operator that that the philosophies align. So that that's great. Um, last question I always ask is what's a great podcast that you like to listen to? Um, what, so podcasts I probably listen to the most are like health and wellness podcasts. So like Huberman lab is probably one of my favorites. So I, I, I think that if you can improve yourself as in person, you'll also improve your business investing in all aspects of your life. And so I know this is focused on real estate, but I would say just to lean into self-improvement, I, I do love the Huberman lab podcast. Yeah, I like those two. They're just uh, so long and technical that sometimes it's tough to get through. That that's a great recommendation. And you'll see, like anyone watching on a video, I got you know the cold plunge behind me and in the gym and a massage chair. And so, like this is my office and slash man cave where I I uh, try to optimize my life. That's great. You uh, yeah, if you have a cold plunge, man, you are all in with Huberman. That that's really awesome. Yeah. Um, so if listeners want to get in touch with you and, and learn more about you, what's the best way they can do that? Uh so I'd like to get more involved in in left field community. So like I, I plan to be this was to kick that off, was to do this podcast. I plan to get more involved there. So you you could probably find me in the in the left field community trying to 
um, build relationships and help out any investors. But then I'd also say, you know, we have a website, SNS Capital Group. That's three letters like Sam, Nancy, Sam Capital Group. Uh, you can find us through there as well. But uh, no, I'm, I'm grateful to for this initial introduction to the community. Look forward to becoming more established with it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jared, for being on the show. We really enjoyed it and got a lot of good value. So thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you for your time. Thanks for everyone who put it together. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you are doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Passive Investing in Private Syndications. This is the best passive investing book I've read. It's easy to read. It's chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. Whether you're a first-time passive investor or a veteran, you can learn from these lessons. You got to read this book. Get the link to Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor on our website today at www.leftfieldinvestors.com. Had fun chatting with Jared. There's a lot of good stuff in there. You know, I think it's interesting how people get started. And as he said, he got started as a maintenance tech, which is awesome because that means he really knows how to operate an apartment from the bottom up. Because if you start at the bottom, you're going to learn all the jobs in between. And so he knows what everyone in his company is doing. And I think that probably gives him a pretty good advantage. And the property management thing was interesting to me because he tried to hire a third-party property manager. And wow, do I know how difficult that is to find someone of quality and he went shopping around you know the secret shopper style and couldn't find anybody he said well nobody else can do it i'll do it myself and so then that just helped his his growth because he had quality property management because he was doing it himself and that, that makes a big difference and he kept talking about operations as the most important component and and it's true you know we get kind of caught up with the glitzy brochures or the great marketer but really what you want is somebody who is an excellent operator at the business and and who better to operate a business than someone, as I said, started from the ground up. And then the interesting thing he said is he looks at the job listings uh, for operators. So if you're looking to invest with somebody, you go on Indeed or one of the one of the listing sites and see it. If they have, as he said, I think uh, 10 maintenance tech job openings, that means something. I don't know. And maybe it means that they can't keep people or maybe it means they're they're growing super fast. But either way, it's a piece of knowledge and you can kind of put it together with whatever else they're doing and figure out exactly what it means. So I haven't heard that one before, so I really like that. Um, the fact that they're in one market, one asset class, I think for an LP, that's probably a really good thing because it's focus. I think there, there could be some downsides if the Cincinnati market turns, then you know are they gonna stay in there? But other than that, you know, having just that singular focus, they're gonna know every property in that market. And when somebody buys a stupid deal, they're gonna know enough to stay out of it. And so I think that's, that's probably a pretty uh, good advantage. And then the fixed debt, you know, I think in the past years, if you were doing fixed debt, you had to have some other advantage to be able to remain competitive. And it sounds like operations was his. But one thing he said is the reason they did fixed debt is because you get consistent, predictable cash flow. And that is what investors are looking for. As you can tell, now that some people aren't getting that anymore, you know, they're upset when operators stop uh, distributions and things like that, which in certain cases you can understand. But if you're looking for a consistent, predictable cash flow, what better place to invest than in a sponsor that has um, consistent expenses such as fixed rate debt. So that's great. And then the last thing he said, which I loved, was you want to make sure that you as an investor are matching your philosophy 
and have the similar philosophy to the operator. Now, that's not going to be the case in every single deal that you invest in, maybe, but the bulk of your investments, you should try to align your philosophy. I don't think it's required because maybe you're very conservative and you want to get into a deal that's a little bit more risky here and there. But in general, with the bulk of your portfolio, you want to get to know the operators and understand them and make sure that their philosophy is something that you can support and get behind. So excellent episode. We thank Jared for being on and, and he mentioned he was going to get more involved in the community. So we definitely look forward to that. That's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.